Good morning, good afternoon or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are and what time of the day uh, you're listening to this episode of the Ask Podcasts. Today I've got a very special guest, a guest from um, 30 miles away from uh, from Goodison, from, from Manchester, Dr. Gary James, who is a Manchester City supporter. So Gary, actually, it's probably a very good day for us to be talking um, prior to this evening's game. Yeah, actually, this is probably, well, I, from, from a City perspective, games against Everton are always interesting because no matter what we achieve and what we do, we still sort of regard Everton as a bit of a bogey team for us because there was a time where we just could not get a win. I know things have changed, obviously, since then, but we just could not get a win against Everton. And we used to see games against Everton as being uh, a, ma- a major rivalry. Um, and we still do, you know, it's not, that's not changed really. You know, people can talk about United and Liverpool, but I know the history of City and Everton games goes way back. And, you know, we've, we've never taken anything for granted and certainly wouldn't do tonight. No, I mean, we did have, when, uh, I suppose if you look at the modern era, sort of um, post your takeover, like for a number of years, we were definitely your bogey team. And, you know, um, great memories of Tim Cahill in particular, um, scoring oh, plenty oh, yeah. of goals against you. Yeah, we used to hate it. <laughs> it really was. It's, it's, yeah, it, people can talk, people, people, you know, around that time, we'd obviously the money had flooded into City and we'd started to um, move towards success. Let's, you know, let's, yeah. let's say that. Um, and people talk about big crunch games coming up against, say, Chelsea or Arsenal or, or, or even Liverpool. And, and we'd, say, we'd be thinking, it's Everton we're looking out for. And I, I genuinely mean that. You know, we, we really, for Wiley, they did. Did seem like um, uh, grudge matches as well to some extent, um, but you know the, the two clubs actually have a, a, a great shared history. You know some of the managers, players, and so on that we've shared over the years. You know people who've become heroes at both clubs. Joe Royals, a, an obvious one, um, and and obviously Joe Mercer. But you know Howard Kendall, Alan, Alan Ball, um, Alan Ball not particularly liked as a manager at City, but nobody can dispute what a great player he'd, he'd been at Everton. Yeah, and, and I've always, I, I think that's a good point, but I've, I've always thought there's been a, a similarity in terms of our positioning within our respective cities. Yeah, because we're both the first giants in our city. We both achieved major success before our rivals, our, our biggest rivals. Um, there's a nice thing, you know, it sounds silly, but the colour blue um, is perhaps... You know something that we we share, but it's also a nice calming sort of colour. Um, whereas red is quite often aggression, isn't it? And uh, I think you know Everton is certainly the the club of of, of Liverpool, of Merseyside, and, and City is certainly the Manchester club. So there's a lot of of shared respect and shared history and and knowledge and so on. And and you know when when Everton was achieving all that success in in the eighties under Howard Kendall, we loved that because. You know, we wanted somebody to to make sure they carried on winning the trophies and that it wouldn't necessarily be um, one of the teams in red. And, and you know, it's brilliant for us. And obviously people like Peter Reid became heroes at both places too. Yeah, no, no, definitely. So, so Gary, let's, we're going to talk, um, concentrate a, a little later in the podcast on, on, on Joe Mercer, who obviously uh, you know, has very much a shared history um, with, with Everton. And Manchester, Manchester City, although obviously a lot of people associate him with Arsenal as well, and quite and quite rightly so. Um, but let, let, let's step back a little bit first. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, because you are uh, quite a quite a historian and, and a very established writer of um, of football related books and materials. So um, let, let, let's set the scene first. Yeah, well, I'm um, I'm actually I've got. A- PhD on, on sports history, on football history, and I've, I've right. researched, and written, researched and written about um, lots of areas of football, if you like, but um, most of my writing, to be frank, is about the Manchester clubs, and I am a City fan, but I've, I've done a, a lot of sort of groundbreaking research on the early years of football in Manchester, and I identified 
clubs that that sort of made their name years before City or United had even really kicked the ball. Um, so I, I, you know, I've, I've I've done a lot on that, a lot on derby matches, and a lot on the general story of of Manchester football. So far, well, I'm I'm currently writing a, a biography of Peter Barnes, who was a a great winger for Manchester City in the seventies. Um, and also played for West Brom and, and played in Spain for a while and, and was round, well known as an England player for a while. Um, and then his career sort of went down a, a, a particular, um, it hit a few rocks along the way. He, <laughs> he went to, he went to, he went to Leeds United, which was probably for an attacking winger, the worst place he could have gone. Um, and his, his England career sort of faded after that and so on. But, but then a few, you know, uh, after in 1985, suddenly his career was given a major boost because he actually joined Ron Axis at Manchester United. And although he was only there for just over a year, that sort of period that he was there, he was on the verge of getting his England place back. And he, he took part in that great sort of start to the season that United had when they went, I can't remember exactly how many games it was now, but at the time it was a record, you know, sort of like 10, 10 games or so without. Uh, defeat right at the start of the season and everybody thought United were going to win the title 85-86 and of course they didn't in the end um, but you know it, it was it was great so I'm, I'm doing Peter Barnes' biography now but before that there's one biography that uh, I've, I've done I've been asked to do a few others but there's only one that I'd really wanted to do before that and that was the biography of Joe Mercer which I know we'll, we'll talk about uh, but yeah so my writing is mostly historical factual about clubs but you know there's the, there are the two biographies in there as well yeah and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your your life as a as a city supporter so um from what you were telling me earlier you um born born in the late 60s so your your, your early memories of manchester city would be that they were quite a successful football well, not quite a successful football club they were a very successful football club late 60s early 70s yeah, well, the, the season I was born, City won the league. Yep. Um, the year after that, they won the FA Cup. Then they won the European Cup Winners' Cup and the um, League Cup in the same season. So, you know, I, I my earliest actual memory of being at a game was from 1972 when Rodney Marsh made his debut for City. So, you know, I don't remember those trophy successes before that. But as far as I was concerned, City were going to win a trophy every year. That's how it felt. Um, and, I, you know, the 1976 League Cup final, which City won, was the last major trophy that the club won up until, you know, 2011. Um, but throughout that time in the 70s, as I'm growing up as a City fan and attending games, you know, United went in the second division. I remember that, you know, um, but... But we were the we were we were the team that was perceived as being the the in terms of success, but the one that was most likely to win trophies. And unfortunately, that was all ruined through poor ownership um, and allowing certain managers to spend more money than perhaps they should have been allowed to spend. Um, and so the eighties, my sort of teenage years as a fan, um, became a period of demonstrating against the owner, well, the chairman Peter Swales. Um, Going, get becoming obsessed, you know, going home and away wherever I could. Um, but you know, typically for us, we would we'd go to a game. City would let us down in some way. We'd all moan and whinge about it. Next week, we'd sing a few songs about Peter Swales, Swales out, and so on. Demonstrate, and we'd be let down again. And it would go on and on and on, and it went on like that until the mid nineties when we were taken over. And then, unfortunately, Francis Lee was a major hero for City as a player. He was basically appointed Alan Ball as manager, and basically the club went work, got worse, and, and we ended up, you know, eventually dropping down to third tier. And if you'd have, you know, if you'd have stopped anyone in what nineteen seventy nine and asked them to name the sort of biggest clubs in England, obviously we'd have talked about Everton, we'd have talked about Liverpool, we'd have talked about Manchester United, and we'd have talked about City. Um, they possibly would have said Spurs, maybe Arsenal, but you know it, that was the way it was. That's how it, and it and it always felt like that. We always felt as if we were going to challenge until suddenly, you know, it's the eighties and everything falls apart. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the post sort of Sky era, the sort of post Premier, you know, beginning of the Premier League era. If you look before that, the um, the Northwest was very much the powerhouse of um, of English football, and that probably lasted from 
the early 60s all the way through to, to the late 80s, early 90s, I, I, I would imagine. I mean, clearly Manchester United extended that uh, into the Premier League teams, but in, into the Premier League times. But in terms of the, of the four big Northwest clubs, you know, we, we all had our time in, in the limelight, so to speak. Absolutely. And, you know, Bill Shankly, in 1968, Bill Shankly said that he regarded Manchester City as his biggest rivals. Bill didn't really, I mean, in terms of Everton, obviously the rivalry is different, you know, it's completely different. And obviously that's the biggest rival. But what he meant was outside of his own city, his biggest rivals were Manchester City. And, you know, I, I, I get quite worked up when I hear certain people on television now, um, supposedly football experts, talking about the great football clubs of the past. And they'll talk about this great rivalry that's always existed between United and Liverpool. Well, to be honest, the two clubs were extremely close for many, many years. And the rivalry didn't really develop until certainly the mid-70s. In the late 60s, games between Everton and City and uh, Everton and United and Liverpool and City and Liverpool United were perceived as major Granada land derbies, you know, the Northwest derbies, if you like. Um, they were not, they were perceived as being at their highest level of football. They were not perceived as being, uh, you know, a game between Everton and City was not perceived as being less significant as Tottenham Arsenal. It was perceived as being a, at least as equal significance, maybe bigger in significance, but depending on how the clubs were doing. And all the great you know, I, I really wish they could reshow the old sort of Granada um, kickoff programs and Granada match programs that used to be on, because throughout the late sixties, the seventies, and as you say, a lot of the eighties, City fell away in the eighties. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that's not the case, but you know, throughout most of the sixties, seventies, and eighties, certainly at least three or four of the clubs from the northwest were challenging all the time. You know, we all had a, we all had a bad spell, but we all um, we we stayed there. You know, United, like I said before, we were in the second division at one point, and City's games with Everton and Liverpool were the the biggest games that Manchester City would have those seasons. And I think I think that the the size of we we'll move the conversation on a little bit, but the size of uh, Manchester City as a football club it, it can be evidenced by the continued support when you went through your darkest times. Well, and also, you know, you look at, I'm a bit of an obsessive about attendances and so on. And um, when when you look at the level of support for Everton and for City, even in our darkest days, it's significant. So from the period 76 to 83, when City got relegated, they were typically the third best supported team in the league. Usually United and Liverpool uh, were the top two. Um, but Everton also, it was quite often it was between City and Everton, who would be the third best support team or the fourth best support team. You know, we'd have that sort of rivalry. And I do remember, you know, on ITV, Granada used to off by and put like a, an attendance chart up to, to actually show how the Northwest clubs were doing. And, and obviously, occasionally we'd have a team like Bol- Bolton or somebody else from the region who would have a, a, a good couple of seasons, maybe in the first division or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, the top four best supported clubs were usually the two from Merseyside and the two from Manchester. Yeah, and, and, and so few people will, would remember that or would even acknowledge that yeah, Arsenal, um, Tottenham, uh, certainly Chelsea, uh, you know, had attendances nothing like the attendances of, of the Northwest clubs. And I suppose if, if you looked out then, you know, beyond the Northwest, where, where were the, uh, the great crowds? Well, they, they would be uh, Leeds, although a little bit constrained by capacity, uh, Newcastle uh, and the two Sheffield clubs, for example. Um, and yeah. I suppose you look at, you know, both, indeed, both Birmingham clubs would have, you know, significantly higher attendances than um, some of the London clubs, which now are perceived as ever having been the biggest clubs in the, in, in the country. It's quite, yeah. quite clear, clearly not the case. So and I, we, I do... Go Sorry, I was just—I was just going to add on that, and I remember um, years ago reading something as a, and it was a sort of an excuse piece, really, and it was saying that the London clubs can't hope to compete with the teams from the northwest in terms of support because there are so many clubs in London. Well, just look how many clubs there are in in the northwest. You know, yeah. <laughs> if, if, I, if I talked about Manchester, if I talked about Manchester, obviously you've got City and United, but. You know, Stockport, Old, Rochdale, Berry, you know, and, and so it goes on. And we can talk about 
Blackburn and Blackpool and Preston and blah. And, you know, you can talk about so many clubs in the Northwest. And yet you had uh, Liverpool and Everton and City United, typically the top four best supported teams. And it's just in, in cities as well. But we're not particularly wealthy cities at this point. Let's not forget that, you know, the the 80s in particular, but also the late 70s was a time when the Liverpool and, and Manchester and, and basically the North was really struggling financially. Absolutely. I, I was brought up in Liverpool in the um, in the 70s and, and early 80s. And, uh, you know, I can remember 20% plus unemployment and, in fact, you know, significantly higher levels of unemployment in, you know, the poorer parts of the city. I can remember, you know, all the big industries around Liverpool sort of shutting up shop in the late 70s, early 80s, following the, the Conservative government coming in in 79. So uh, football, I suppose, which was deeply unfashionable, um, was our last sort of remaining saviour. Yeah, I mean, it, football was what kept the, the, the two cities really in the news for positive reasons. Football was the, the, the thing that gave us something to focus on and, and allowed us to, to feel superior to... Um, uh, certain clubs from the south, really, <laughs> really. <laughs> and and you know, in terms of in terms of support, we can't overlook. But certainly, from a Everton and Liverpool perspective, and from a Manchester City perspective, for for our grounds were based in areas that did have high unemployment for much of that time. Manchester United is a little bit different because of of where that's located. Um, but but certainly, you know, Main Road as well as Goodison and Anfield are, are in areas that are not exactly the, the richest areas in our cities. So if we move forward, your experience in recent years, uh, post your your most recent takeover, and one, one suspects probably your last takeover, um, has been very different. And I mean, on the, on the day that we we play you, I mean, what 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 do you view as a city supporter at the moment? Well, you know, it is a, a lot of us are, are still grounded. A lot of us still know that this could all be taken away tomorrow. It can happen. We know this sort of thing can happen. It's unlikely now, but it could happen. Um, and we just enjoy it. You know, we we obviously we couldn't. Uh, well, we wouldn't be able to do this this year, but every time we win the league, we've won the league title. Well, every every time we've won the league title, title there's always been a pitch invasion. And I, you know, I saw something from supporters of certain clubs saying, "Oh, that's small-minded and that's petty or whatever." But the actual fact is, it absolutely matters to us still. It's not, it's not that we take we we carried away with success. It's it's that we we. It matters. We still have that feeling, you know. And I, I we're in the league cup final. Obviously, I want to win the League Cup final. I'm not one of these people who would go around saying, oh, it's on the League Cup, so what? It, it, it's, we've waited all those years to have a chance. And when that chance has come, you've got to enjoy it. And I, years ago, I interviewed Malcolm Allison, and um, he said to me at the time, one thing that he learned from Joe Mercer was, celebrate your successes. Celebrate every success as if it's your first, because it could be your last and I think that's a very important point. You know, quite often, I'm sure the people who win a trophy and think, oh, well, you know, they're all, we're going to keep on winning trophies forevermore. But in 1976, when, we, when City won the League Cup, I honestly thought we'd win the League Cup or the FA Cup or the league the next year or the next year or the next year. And 30 years later, you know, we were still waiting. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really important that we don't take anything for granted. But... We were the lucky ones. I'm not. I'm not going to hide that. You know that I've interviewed um, Cal Doon, who's the chairman of the club, and they, uh, I've asked him, and he told me quite frankly that of certain other clubs that he looked at, um, that that were looked at, and those clubs, for whatever reason, chose either not to develop, let them develop the interest, or they 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 made a bit of a mess presenting their their, their um, presentations to them. I'm uh, sure I'm sure you're aware there's a um a, a deep line of thought amongst Evertonians that Everton were one of those clubs that was uh, was looked at and uh, whilst we probably don't need to go into the details as to why it didn't happen. Um yeah, it could it could it could have been somebody else but you know hey it's you yeah. guys and um they, they they were they were looked at it it could have been everton it could easily have been everton i mean just to just to let you know one of the reasons without talking about any specific club but one of the reasons why they chose manchester city in the end was because of 
Man- because the club was underperforming, which obviously could have also applied to Newcastle or Everton or certain other clubs at the time. Now, the club was underperforming. Although it was, a, it was in the Premier League, but it wasn't likely to challenge for trophies. So it was underperforming with a loyal fan base. And the, the other thing that sort of swung it in City's favour, if you like, was the stadium and the, the area around the stadium. So although they have spent a, an incredible amount of money on the stadium since moving, they didn't need to spend money on the stadium. They didn't need the club to move home. So I think that's something that worked against Everton, to be frank. But everything else that I've said, you know, in terms of uh, the club perhaps underperforming, in terms of loyal fan base, in terms of um, coming from a city that's known around the world as a footballing city, that all those Everton certainly ticked all those boxes just like Manchester City did. But I think ultimately the stadium was probably the, the biggest difference. Which is a shame because you know I love Goodison Park, but I think we all know that unfortunately a modern stadium is 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 the answer, really. Yeah, I mean we uh, we should get planning permission next next week. Um, yeah, good. Um, I hope you. Yeah. I hope you do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be. Uh, I like. I'm sure it was when you you know when you left Main Road. It, it's something you have to go through, I suppose. And um, we've got probably another three, possibly four years left at Goodison. And um, obviously some of that period is not going to be with fans, but the moment fans are allowed back in, I'm sure we will um, savour every every single moment. Let's, and, um... and make, make sure, where if, if the move does happen, obviously if it's going to happen, make sure you take in every moment of Goodison, yeah. everything. The things that perhaps drive you mad at the moment, make sure that you look at them and you watch them. And you, yeah, it, because leaving Main Road was, was extremely difficult. We knew it was the right thing to do. It absolutely was the right thing to do. Um, but it was very emotional for a lot of us. And it doesn't matter whether you're a supporter of you know, City, Arsenal, Middlesbrough, or any of the clubs, any club that's moved. That stadium move is the most heart-wrenching moment because a, a bloke said to me, and he was quite right, that um, you know, as far as his life is concerned, he, he's moved home, he, he's got married, he got divorced, his parents have died, um, he's, he's changed jobs. But the one thing that had been constant had been the football ground. And then suddenly that was changing. And he, he, he genuinely felt lost. So you've got, it, is, it is a major loss, but it's the right thing to do. The, the move has to happen. And the benefits that can follow are, are, are superb. Yeah, no, I, I, it's something I'm both sort of uh, really excited about, but also dread at the same time. So, um, yeah. <laughs> one of one of those weird weird things. Gary, you you and I first started chatting to each other. Although I've been following um, your work on Twitter and elsewhere previously, when um, you posted something a few weeks ago about your um, your meeting your meeting with Joe Mercer, which is the reason why why we're, we're talking today. So let's let's get on to to, to dear Joe. I mean. Um, I, I I'm not I'm not particularly a historian in terms of, of football matters, but um, my grandfather in particular, uh, who, who is a mad Evertonian, uh, adored Joe Mercer. He, he adored him, I think, primarily because he met him once, and he was in very very kind and respectful towards my grandfather, who was a um, a boiler maker at Camel Alert, so just like a very ordinary man, but. Um, he placed his footballers on a, on a pedestal, my grandfather. And the fact that the great Joe Mercer stopped in the road, in Goodison Road, outside, outside Goodison, and spoke to him before a match was something that he carried with him all of his life. So I've always had a, um, through that, because my grandfather had told me that, that story on many occasions, I've had a, always had a sort of a great um, respect and, and, and um, I, I suppose um, affection for Joe. Now you obviously know him, and or, or you you knew knew him, and you had a long association with him. And I'm sure that you will probably tell me uh, something similar about your feelings for him. Absolutely. I mean, the thing about Joe Mercer is, I think everybody everybody saw him as this wonderful, um, jolly sort of affectionate, just a. Just a wonderful, wonderful guy, and it's funny. I, 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 I can talk about um, when I first met him, and, I, and I'll go through that in a minute. But one of the things I, I, I ended up writing his biography, which I'll, I'll talk about. But 
one of the things that Colin Bell, who was um, obviously, unfortunately, he's recently died, but Colin Bell, who's, who was regarded by many Manchester City, fan, City fans as the, the greatest ever Manchester City player. And although that can be argued by some nowadays, you know, that, that, it, that was the, certainly his status when I interviewed Colin Bell. And I said to him about doing this biography, Joe Merson, Colin Bell said, you're going to have a problem. And I'm like, oh, my. He said, well, everybody's going to tell you what a wonderful, nice man he was. <laughs> he said, it, 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 people won't, you won't hear any scandal. You won't hear any gossip. You won't, you know, he's just a lovely, lovely man. And they're all going to say exactly the same thing. And um, to be honest, it was true. A lot of it, everyone did say lots of wonderful, incredible stuff. But um, it's the, the first time I met him, I, I, I'll go through this because it was, I, I was only, well, I, I, I was writing a book. I won't bore you with all the details about why I was doing this book, but I was only, um, well, it was, I was 21 when, when the book came out, but I'd started to do it a couple of years before that. And I'd been quite lucky in the way that all this has come about. But, but basically, I was doing what was a pictorial book on Manchester City. And one of the reasons I agreed to do this, I, I, there's the, the publisher of a guy from a publishing firm that was sort of doing the book with me. Um, was, a, was a Nottingham Forest fan and one of the things he said to me re- fairly early on was if we do this book I think we'll be able to get Joe Mercer to write the forward to the book so being obviously a City fan Joe Mercer the, well, he's no longer the most successful City manager of all time but at that time he was certainly the most successful manager, City manager of all time and you know arguably he's still the greatest ever Manchester City manager so obviously as a, as a City fan that that was better better than doing the book so unfortunately my co-author um actually died whilst we were doing the, the book and so we hadn't arranged anything with joe mercer and my co-author's widow was talking to me and i almost didn't carry on with the book because of the way things were, were obviously but she said that keith would like you to carry on the book and also i would like to give you joe mercer's contact details because I think Joe, Keith had actually mentioned it to Joe, and I think Joe would be interested in still doing the forward. So I wrote, you know, this nice letter, you know, dear Mr. Mercer. <laughs> um, and I wrote this, this nice letter, handwritten note, and my writing's awful, but a handwritten note. Um, and then, and I put my phone number on there. Well, I was still living with me at my mum and dad's house, and I put their phone number on there. And uh, then two days later, the phone starts ringing, uh, and I answered it. And it was Nora, Joe's wife, uh, Nora Mercer. And she went, uh, we've received your letter. Um, of course you can. Why don't you come over? Of course, you know. So I, I'm, I, at the time, I didn't have a car, actually. Um, but my dad obviously did. And um, so I said, uh, what, could, could I bring my dad? Who's probably more of a city fan than I am. And I'd obviously lived through the transformation that Joe Mercer was responsible for at, at City. So, yeah, of course you can. Of course you can. So we agreed to go up on this Sunday. And they lived in the Wirral, didn't they, at the time? Yeah, they lived at Hoy Lake at the time, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they, Joe had more or less lived on the Wirral for virtually all of his life, actually. I mean, there was a time when he had to live in Manchester and there was a time when he lived in Sheffield and a bit in Coventry. But even when he was playing for Arsenal, he still lived on the Wibble. He was still, you know, because <laughs> he, he used to travel down there at weekends for the game. Um, but he'd be training at Anfield, actually, during the week. He'd, he'd, they allowed him to train at Anfield. Everton wouldn't let him train once he'd left. Um, but so anyway, we uh, the day came, his Sunday came. And unfortunately, my dad's car wouldn't, couldn't work. Um, there was a problem with it and we were like oh, we can't let obviously we can't let Joe Mercer down and in those days you know if it was it, I just thought this would be my one and only chance so my dad um, the company he works for um, was an office furniture company and they had basically some white transit vans yeah. so my dad managed to get hold of one of these that morning and we ended up driving over to Hoylake from Manchester in this white transit van and we're talking about Joe and my dad's telling me things he remembers about you know when Joe Mercer arrived at City and and I'm talking about some of the research that I've done and you know making sure everything's spot on and then you know talking about his 
Joe's dad played for Notting- Nottingham Forest and all this sort of thing. And then just as we get in towards um, the street where they lived at Hoy Lake, we sort of thought, oh, wait a we're at least 40 minutes early, right? Because we'd allowed extra time, as you'd do, at least 40 minutes. So we can't, we, you know, straight away, we sort of, my dad's saying, well, we can't turn up outside Joe Mercer's house 40 minutes early. We just can't, right? It's Joe Mercer. <laughs> and and then we sort of drive out and then, and we can't park outside his house in a white transit van. It's Joe Mercer, you know, ex-manager of England, ex-manager of City, great Arsenal and Everton legend. And, you know, so we end up, we sort of parked at, at the end on the next street, but we could sort of see their house. So we could look across to where their house was. And we parked up in this white van and we, we sat there for 40 minutes. And then just, just as it was getting close to one o'clock, we decide, right, we'll go across. We get out. Rock, jump out of the van, walk down the street. I knock on the door. The door opens almost immediately. And Joe stood there um, in a cardigan. Right? And Joe stood there, big beaming smile. And he just says, come in. Right? He didn't even ask you, we were just come in. And before before we actually got through the door, Nora popped her head round from, from the one of the rooms there. She popped her head round and said, you've been hiding in that white transit van for the last 40 minutes, haven't you? <laughs> it was just, it sort of just brought, it, it sort of brought us down, straight down to earth, but also it made it so welcoming straight away. She, and she said, yeah, you could have parked it outside here. Who do you think we are? You know, just, you could have parked it here. And we explained about the breakdown and all this sort of thing. But, you know, Joe, Joe started saying, is there anything I can do? Do you, do you want me to come and, and fix your car? Or, and it, you know, so within five minutes of getting inside their house, we've got this ex, well, this footballing legend offering to try and sort our car out back in Manchester. And it's like unbelievable. I just, you know, I never really expected anything like that. And we ended up, we went into his, he had a, a, like a, I suppose you'd call it a study, wouldn't you? But a room where he had his footballing collection, if you like. And, and there were, you know, some great photographs of it just on the wall of, of his time at Everton and Arsenal. Um, the ball from the 1950 FA Cup final when Arsenal beat Liverpool um, and uh, scrapbooks and so on. And, and we just sat there and, and it was great. I mean, Joe, I don't know how much you know, but in his, his sort of final 10 years of his life, really, he did suffer with Alzheimer's. Um, yeah, certainly, yeah. And, and Nora... Uh, when after Joy died, um, Nora um, was trying to get the FA to do something about this. So, you know, bear in mind he died in August 1990, and they knew then that, well, they felt then that proper research needed to be done into heading the ball and all those sort of footballing injuries um, that that you can get, I suppose, and 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 so on, and, and the the effects it might have on Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. And there were meetings with, well, we were trying to get meetings sorted out with the FA and, and so on. But here we are, you know, 30 years later and, and still very little has changed there. But uh, but Joe was, at times, was a bit forgetful. Um, it wasn't too noticeable the first time I went, but obviously as time wore on, it, it became more and more noticeable. But uh, having said that, you know, when he, when, he, when he sparkled, when you just asked him something, Oh, you know it, it, the stories and the the way it was. It, it was just incredible. You know, I, I don't know if I told you before about um, one of my favourite times as well was um, the day after Arsenal had won the league at Anfield in 1989, mm-hmm. and, and obviously we all know this dramatic story about how it could have been Liverpool or Arsenal that won the title and it went down to its last game, and Arsenal end up. Uh, it depends on you, your viewpoint, but sort of sneaking it, I guess. Right? Last, minute. Um, last minute, last minute. Well, I, <laughs> what, there's a, there's a, so obviously that I watched that game live at the night time. You know, we had rarely had live games. So I'd watch it was a Friday night, night, wasn't it? It was a Friday night. And the, yeah. next, the next day, the Saturday, I was actually going to see Joe about the book, right? right. The, ne- the next day. And um, we, again, I took my dad. Um, and we went over because you know this was a great thing that when I'd speak to Nora, she'd say, "I need your dad coming." You know, or, or <laughs> eventually, 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 when I'm writing the biography of Joe, it'd be, "Is, is your girlfriend coming?" And you know, and, and you'd go and you'd be, do us a drink and some food and that sort of thing. But this this day, I, the, so the Saturday, we got there, 
And um, to us, I've got to be honest, I didn't really care whether it was Liverpool or Arsenal that year that, that won the league. I didn't really care because, I'm, you know, as a City fan, it didn't really bother me. But obviously I watched it and I loved the drama that night. But then when I'm citing Joe Mercer's, whoa. First of all, the fact that he was an Evertonian, you know, so that was like, how brilliant was last night? Um, the fact that he, he was an ex-Arsenal player, Incredible. Takes it to another level, obviously. And the fact that George Graham had actually been brought down to England and signed by Joe Mercer when he was the Aston Villa manager. And so the reason George Graham was a, a name in English football was because of Joe Mercer down to Joe, yeah. to yeah. England. And and we sat there and, you know, Nora says, George was on the phone before and I'm thinking, George? And she went, Joe was telling him how proud he was that one of his, you know, ex-boys has done it. And, and suddenly you think, oh yeah, George Graham. So this morning, you know, this morning, George Graham's been on the phone to Joe Mercer to talk about that game and to that success. And and it was just, it was just a superb morning, really, to, to be there and to hear all this, all this celebration that Joe was a part of it in some small way. You know, he was able to to have this conversation with George. And as far as Noah is concerned, you know, George always oh, is one of our one of our boys. You know, and <laughs> in, the, in, the year, in the years that followed, she used to talk about you know Mike Summerby as being one of our boys, and 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 you know some of the other players that that Joe had had at various clubs. You know, it was as if it was this extended family, and I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into Joe's. Um time at Everton. The other story that I loved about uh, about the Mercers and yourself was when she got Bobby Charlton to, to phone you <laughs> to apologise. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it sounds... I mean, at the time, it was it was surreal, but it, it became sort of this everyday type of thing, really, because one night um, I had uh, John Watson phone me to, to give his views on Joe Mercer, and, you know, it, it was really bizarre really because sometimes it was sometimes I'd written to people and, and tried to organize interviews or whatever but sometimes Nora just put people in my my way but but basically what had happened was after after Joe Joe died in 1990 and I always I always wanted to write a book on Joe but because of my own commitments after my first book came out my own commitments meant that I was doing something else but my view was I was going to write a book on um Joe's time at City as his managerial career, but it soon became obvious that I needed to do something in his full life. So I, I, I ended up, uh, it was really hard at the time, but I, I did his biography and I interviewed lots of people and researched it, but we ended up, we were having, in, the book came out in um, December, 1993, and we were having a book launch in Manchester. And, and so obviously I'd been in touch with people like Francis Lee and some of the people that um, he, he had played for him at, at Manchester or, 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 or from other parts of his career. But there's some people that Nora had invited or was going to invite, um, people who perhaps I hadn't directly interviewed or hadn't really a, a strong connection with, but people that, that sort of mattered. Anyway, I the phone starts ringing one night and I just go and answer it. And on the other end, it's, I hear, hello, is that Gary? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's Bobby here, uh, Bobby Charlton. Um, oh, hello. <laughs> and he said, he said uh, Nora, Nora Mercer um, has asked me to, to, to phone you. Um, he said, uh, I can't come to the book launch uh, on whichever day it was, Tuesday, yeah. I think it was, but anyway, I can't come, I can't come to the book launch. I'm, I'm, I've got to go to Kuala Lumpur for some promotional work for Manchester. So I can't, I've got to be in Kuala Lumpur. So I'm really sorry, I, I, can't, I can't come. I, oh, and he went, I told Nora, but she said I must phone you in person to apologise. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, so, oh, right. And he's saying, is that OK? And part of me as a city man is thinking, should I say no, it's not OK? No, no, but, I, yeah, but I'm there going, of, co- of course, yeah, that's, that's no problem at all. Anyway, next day I'm, I'm phoning Nora to talk about some of the arrangements. And she went, did Bobby phone you? I went, yeah. We? Well, I told him to phone you. <laughs> and it, it was like, it, it, it's a good job he has. If he hadn't, it, you know, I'd, I'd have had words. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, when, I, when I read that, 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 that really tickled me. I just, because um, I, I had a good fortune to, to meet Bobby Charlton on, on a few occasions. And um, obviously, 
a phenomenal achiever in the game, but also such a lovely man as well. And um, the idea of, of course, him, yeah. the idea, I mean, he, he would want to phone you if, if the fact that he'd been told to is probably a different matter, but he, he would have wanted to have told it to have phoned you anyway. No, it just well, it, it, it tickles me. It's great. And it also, it probably shows something about footballers from that era in some ways, in that, you know, Bobby Charlton certainly didn't need to phone me. You know, it was Nora who actually had invited him. And so he should have just apologised to Nora that he couldn't make it. If he, he you know, even if he, well, he, obviously he would do, he would do. But, but, but the fact that she told him, it's just, and there are other things like, you know, I used to, sometimes I'd go over to, to see her because after, obviously after the book came out, I continued to see Nora all the way through up until her, her death, actually. Um, and and she'd, she'd be having a conversation with you and she'd be saying, I was talking to to I was talking to Jimmy about you the other day, and I'm thinking Jimmy, Jimmy, and eventually it'd be Jimmy Hill, you know, because <laughs> of Jimmy Hill, the, the ex Coventry chairman, but yeah, also yeah. the match of the day and all that sort of thing. And and all oh, right, and then I'd be and then because of the way things were, you'd then move on to something else. And then afterwards, I'd be thinking, what was she saying to him? <laughs> you know what? And it's obviously something about the book, or something about the writing, or something about the research, or or whatever. But but quite often she'd tell me, and um, I'd be, I'd be seeing her, and she'd talk to me as if, in in a sense, a bit like anyone, you know, like a, a family member would give you the latest gossip or, or mm. whatever. You know, oh, you know, she's got married, or this has happened, or that's happened, and 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 that's what it was like with Nora. It was it was superb, and I think part of the reason why Joe Mercer was such a wonderful wonderful man despite at sometimes having really difficult days in football was because of Nora and the rest of the family I, I, you know they, they, they had um they had one child um David who unfortunately died of cancer before Nora died actually it, it was quite quite tragic in the end and quite sad but David um used to live near them on the wheel and and whenever I went over it it sort of popped round and just you know initially I'm, I'm sure he was probably popping around to make sure that you know his mum was okay and so on but but he'd be popping around for a good old chat and and you'd be sat there and it, it just it was superb he, he told me a great story he was um he he, he wasn't a footballer but for a while he, he sort of tried to pursue a bit of a footballing career right because obviously joe was a footballer and joe's dad was a yeah, yeah, third yeah. generation you know there's a uh, the Joe was managing Aston Miller, and um, David, his son, was um, sort of a youth player there. And then one day, Joe called David into the office at Aston Miller. He said, "David, good news, I've got you a job." <laughs> and David went, "I've got a job. I'm a footballer." He went. No, no, you're going to work in a car showroom now. You're not a footballer anymore. <laughs> it was his dad's way of telling him, you're not going to make it as a footballer, son. <laughs> and David told me this. Um, and David David would tell me this with a real laugh, you know, because he was a bit like his dad, that he had this fantastic smile and this fantastic laugh. Uh, and it was just great, you know. And, and it must have been, I mean, yes, there were dark days for Joe over the years and health problems and all sorts of things. But uh, the family were clearly um part of a this really close and really kept spirits high and and perhaps you know in some of the darkest days uh that was what kept joe going you know well he certainly did yeah it's good to hear i mean look, looking at sort of joe's career from, from from a distance it seems that i mean obviously very successful uh both as a footballer but also uh in in later years as a manager, but there were, there were also periods of real difficulty, weren't there? I mean, it seems, and again, I'm not a historian in the context that you are, but for example, he joined Everton in 1932, he joined Everton, wasn't it? When he left uh, immediately after the war, I mean, yeah. but but it seemed to me that the leaving of Everton was actually quite a difficult period for him. It was, and he was going to give up football completely. Basically, he got, you know, it, it, it became an England international before the war, and yeah. it was part of that great Everton title-winning team just just before the war and all of that. But 
clearly the war years, he was based in the, he was part of the Army Physical Training Corps, rehabilitating soldiers. And I know sometimes people talk about the work they did at the time as, as if it was easy. And I think some footballers had it easy, but certainly Joe put everything into it. And, and Joe um, would talk about people coming back from, you know, basically from the front line, uh, you know, the, the front um, and coming back and having to rehabilitate them in some way or they'd, they'd lost a limb or whatever it may be. And that work, you know, was was crucial, really, getting people back to society. And that's where Joe, I think, developed into a great leader of men because he, he had the compassion, but he also understood how to help people through difficult periods. And, and it's no surprise in my uh, now that you know, when I look back at that period, if you like, that that's when he became like a, a, a great sort of captain and then ultimately manager. But at Everton, Joe had played. He played in a, an England game and got injured, and uh, you know just just after the war, really. And and Everton were managed by a guy called um, Theo Kelly, who yeah. Joe just didn't get on with him. He didn't. Joe didn't see him as being a footballing person at all. And and I think a lot of the other Everton players felt similar actually. But but because Joe was by this point, I suppose one of the older players, and he was he had this injury and he was trying to get back. Instead of helping him through the injury, they basically he was cast aside and he you know he wasn't going to play really and. It was Joe ended up. His father-in-law owned a grocery business, and basically, he was training Joe up to be to work in that grocery business. and And Joe was developing that business interest, and 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 although he sort of hated it, if you like, um, because he wanted to be a footballer, Joe was very much um, seeing that as his future. A, a future in the grocery trade, which you know, we, he had, there were shops all over the world, you know, Ellesmere Port, New Brighton, and, and so on. And Joe, his career was over, and then suddenly, out of the blue, he was, still quite, sorry, to, yeah, he was still quite a young man then, wasn't he? he was sort of early 30s, mid 30s. Yeah, well, he, he he was born in 1914, so we're talking 32 max, you know, about 32. And um, it ended up that Tom Whitaker, who was he wasn't the Arsenal manager at this point, but he was the sort of physio at Arsenal and and more or less sort of the assistant manager the way it worked out. Tom Whitaker was also the England physio and Tom Whitaker knew what Joe Merce was capable of. And he also knew that with the right care and attention, his, his leg injury would, would, would be resolved. And and so Arsenal suddenly showed, in, showed interest in signing Joe and he was asked to meet them at the Adelphi Hotel in, in Liverpool and and he went along and Theo Keller, the Everton manager, had basically brought Joe's boots in a in a bag and so basically saying, Well, you're off, aren't you? You're going, right? And 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 Joe sat there wondering what the hell's going on really. And but as soon as he starts to hear properly that Arsenal are interested, he's thinking, Well, it, there's a quote, he says something like, um, if Arsenal was interested in you as a you know a fully fit footballer, that's that's you know significant. But here they were interested in a grocer with a dodgy leg, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so if we're interested in a, a grocer, if we're interested in a grocer with a dodgy leg, then you would sign for him, wouldn't you? Um, and and he signed for Arsenal. Um, he, he said he wanted he wanted to continue to live on on the will because. Uh, supposedly because of the business interest, but to, in true. Uh, well, was, that was partly true because obviously, even at 32, he did have this leg injury. He doesn't know whether this is going to be successful or it's going to be over in six weeks. He doesn't know that. So he, he asked if he could continue to, to live on the Wirral, um, go down for games and train at Anfield. So that's what he did. And he used to train, train with, I think it was, well, Sometimes I think it was with Bobby Bob, Bob Paisley, but sometimes with Jimmy Mealy. I think it was. Mm-hmm. I might be. I'd have to check that. But but certainly he'd be training at Anfield. He go. He, he ends up playing for Arsenal and with the right care and attention. Suddenly, I'm playing a bit more defensive than he'd been before because he was uh, a traditional sort of wing half, if you like. But he used to be a bit more attack minded. And then when he was playing for Arsenal, he became a bit more defensive again. Um, but. It, it transformed him really, and 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 it ended up that um, he, he went on to become Arsenal captain, but played a part in 
a major part in three title successes, the FA Cup, two FA Cup finals, but winning the FA Cup in 1950. And, and just in, incredible, really incredible. And he went on until he was 39 and would have carried on beyond that. But he got injured again and, you know, he broke his leg. And, yeah. and that really was the end of his of his playing career. Wow. Amazing, amazing stuff. And, and then and then he went, he, he, did he go straight into management after that? Or, or did he? Uh... Well, he, 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 didn't, he, he didn't know what to do. I mean, one, one of the things, actually, thinking about this, whilst he was an Arsenal player, and this, mm. this is really significant, actually, from a, an Everton point of view. Um, I mean, you'll certainly know a lot more about this than I do, but the, the 50s, the, the early 50s, there were a few struggles at Everton, obviously, um, probably because of Phil Kelly and what, what had followed to some extent. But... Um, Joe, as an Arsenal player, as the Arsenal captain, actually went to a, an Everton shareholders meeting because he owned some shares in Everton and he stood up and made a sort of passionate speech about how everyone, directors, fans, whatever, had to pull together and, you know, find a way forward and, and made this. And it actually did an awful lot to, to sort of boost the, the, the mood of some of the some of the people at the club at the time. And also, I think he used a bit of influence to to. to talk to the directors about what the club needed to do as well um so he, he even though he was this arsenal this great arsenal player that love of everton was still there and one thing i mean he, in the late 60s i think it was um there was a, a, a he had a conversation with alan ball i think it was when joe was at city and alan ball i think he might he was having a bit of an issue i can't remember where it was now but a bit of an issue and joe basically said to him you've got to realise you're playing for the greatest club in England. If you're playing for Everton, you're playing for the greatest club in England. That should override any other problem you've got, you know. And Joe, Joe meant this. He, you know, he, he often would say that he, he, he may have learnt more about actually football tactics or about the, the development of the game at Arsenal, but when he was at Everton, he learned how to enjoy life and... Um, the camaraderie of the team and he always felt fortunate that he played for Everton who he regarded as the, the the greatest club and Arsenal who were I suppose in some ways perceived as a more of a sort of aristocratic club internationally and you know maybe not in England but internationally you know they'd often go over to Paris for this friendly every year and it would be, you know, the Arsenal are coming over and so on. So, so Joe always felt fortunate about that. And, and of course he remained great friends with people like Dixie Dean and um, Tommy Jones and, and Albert, Albert Gildard and uh, people like this for, for, well, throughout his life, really great friends. Um, but what happened with uh, once, once his playing career ended, um, he almost got a chance to become Arsenal manager at one point, um, but his opportunity sort of came more or less straight away with Sheffield United. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't the right club for Joe. We got relegated under Joe, but on one of his famous sort of um, after dinner speaking lines was something about um, when he took over at Sheffield United. He saw this fantastic pitch. No, because in those days, Sheffield United, Bramall Lane was a cricket ground as well as a football ground. Yeah, yeah, I remember. And he that, saw yeah. this. Fan- yeah, and and the weather wasn't particularly great, but he saw this beautiful green turf, this beautiful green square. So he went over to it um, to have a look to see if he get, could get could get the players training on it because it was better than the rest of it. And it, as soon as he sort of stepped onto this beautiful green turf, which was obviously the wicket. Um, the cricket wicket, alarm bells started ringing, people were running across the pitch and and more or less the first sort of welcome to Sheffield United was you, you have to play second fiddle to the cricket. You know, you'll never, you, football won't achieve anything in this town and, and, and so on. And, and Joe, he, he used to have a few run-ins with the directors. There was one where he was, um, the, the, when we were in, in, in this run of bad results, um, one of the he was sat in the diet in the boardroom, and one of the directors was saying, um, "Well, you need to, you need to." And he was talking about tactics, and he obviously didn't have a clue. You need to do such and such. He said, "My milkman was saying," and a joint interrupts. He says, "Your milkman, your milkman. How long has he been playing football?" He said, 
um, he said something like, my, my mother-in-law has been sitting next to my father-in-law for when he's driving for the last 40 years, but don't put her behind that wheel. <laughs> you know? And but I think, I think this was, Joe really struggled, I think, with some of the sort of traditional directors that were in the game at the time. And he, he much preferred it when he was at a club like Coventry City, which was, you know, his last club as a, a sort of manager, um, and Manchester City, where the directors sort of allowed the manager to manage the club. Just you manage it, you're the expert, you get on and you do it. Um, and when when there's a chairman at a football club and a, a set of directors that just gave Joe the, the support he needed, but the, a free reign to do whatever he wanted with the team or whoever he wanted to appoint as an assistant manager or whatever, that's when Joe thrived as a manager. Really interesting. He, he was at City for how long as, as a manager? Was it 65 he joined? Or yeah, so yeah. after after Sheffield United, yeah, he got sacked at Sheffield United. In, uh, well, he did no, he, he moved to Aston Villa. He didn't right. get sacked actually. He moved to Aston Villa because um, Aston Villa they got relegated his first season, and he got he got um, a telegram from uh, somebody from Sheffield which said, um, "Congratulations, Joe, you've done it twice now," or something like that. You know, relegated the, the team. But anyway, he was Aston Villa. He they got promoted and they won the League Cup. Um, in its first year, actually. So it wasn't regarded in the way that it, it perhaps was later. But, you know, it found success. Then he had um, uh, health problems. He had a stroke and he, 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 Aston Villa did sack him whilst he was recovering, which is awful. There's, there's loads of um, negative stuff about that, actually, because it was really poor what they did. Um, and, and then Joe was out of football for a couple of years, um, but he, he was acting as a, um, a journalist, writing his own columns. And he, he used to say something like, um, being a football manager is a poor substitute for being a footballer, but you, being a journalist is a poor substitute for being a manager. It, you know, he, he just didn't like it at all. And then City uh, were at their lowest point. Well, the, I was going to say their lowest ever point. It was their lowest ever point at that time. It got worse in the nineties, but it was their lowest ever point at the time. They're in the second division, but mediocre in the second division, not really going anywhere. And Joe was appointed, and the first thing he said really was, "I want to bring in um, a young coach because I can't work the, the players in the way that I used to do at Aston Villa and Sheffield United." And so he brought in Malcolm Allison uh, as his coach, and that was important for Joe. The other thing, though, which was really significant, when I was interviewing um, Nora about this, when I was doing the book, I said about him arriving at City, and she went, well, Joe was very naughty. She said, it was against medical advice. I was, he told me, I'm just going to see some friends in Manchester, and when he came back, he'd accepted this job right, as Manchester City manager. So she said, I was livid. Right? So she said, we need to talk to the doctor about this. So we went to see the doctor and the doctor said something along the lines of, it's killing you not to play, not to be involved in football. It's killing you to be involved in football. So you may as well become the city manager because if it kills you being the city manager, well, at least you'll have died doing something you enjoy. <laughs> and that was the <laughs> medical advice. Um, so, so, so that was it. And, and he, he, he was a bit sort of, he wasn't great. I interviewed Malcolm Allison about this. He wasn't um, particularly great in his first few months in terms of health. Um, he struggled a bit, but as city developed, Joe's health improved. Joe got better and better. And, they won the second division title that first year. Um, they had a, a season when, you know, they sort of consolidated in first division and then they won the league, then the FA Cup, then the European Cup Winners' Cup. And he's, you know, he's still the only city manager to bring a European trophy to, to Manchester City. Um, and of course, that European success was achieved before Liverpool had ever won a European trophy or, you know, before certain other clubs had ever got to that sort of position. So, you know, it's, it, it was a, a major, a really major success for him. And along the way as well, you know, a few times he became, you know, the first manager to have won, you know, the various trophies along the way as a player and as a manager or the first person to do this. So he, he achieved a lot of landmark moments. Um, it's, it's interesting. Unfortunately for City. Sorry, it, it's interesting, Gary, because I always think there's some parallels, not totally, but there's some parallels between his time at City, where, you know, winning four trophies in, uh, in, in four years 
and actually Howard Kendall's first first period at Everton. Yes, yes. Um, it, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? That um, when you get a period like that, it's it, it's so dramatic, it's so exciting, it's it's everything that it can't. When if you stop winning trophies just after that, or or, or it, it's difficult, or or sometimes what what happened with City, and this is the, the really sad bit, really, is that. They won the European Cup Winners Cup and the League Cup in 1970. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that's, you know, April was the European Cup Winners Cup final, end of April. And then in the November, end of October, start of November, a takeover of a club started. And what had happened was a group of businessmen in Manchester, and it was the typical, you know, of, typical for the period, you know, somebody who owned a, sh- uh, a news agent and somebody who owned a pub and somebody, who, they, these guys decided to launch this takeover. And their view was that Manchester City, despite winning those trophies, needed more success. And this takeover, they, 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 these guys felt that Joe Mercer was um, perhaps the... I wouldn't say dinosaur because that's too strong, but 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 certainly they felt that the success was all down to Malcolm Allison, and so they they spent some time with Malcolm Allison persuading him that if he be, if they if they win their takeover they would get rid of Joe Mercer, but Malcolm Allison would be managing his own right, he would get a massive pay increase, but also he would be able to sign any player he wanted to, and you know Mal- Malcolm was quite open about this in later years. Um, he was conned basically because the what happened was that the takeover rumbled on for uh, almost two years during that time um the the sort of traditions of a club were thrown out to some extent you know a bit like everton that quite often you, you have you're trying to create you, you, there's, there's a way of doing it and at City at the time, it was all about respectability and so on. And that was thrown out of a window with his takeover. And this was the Peter up... Swales takeover, wasn't it? Yeah, but Swales, at the time, Swales wasn't part of the original group that took over. A guy called Ian oh, okay. Niven, who became a director at City, yep. all the way through. Ian, Ian Niven was part of that and some of the others. But but basically, Swales came in. Um, it depends on what you believe, but I, I interviewed Swales. He came in as this sort of peacemaker and eventually sort of broke, is supposed to have brokered this peace between the traditional board and the Alexander family who'd been involved with clubs since the 1890s. Right? The Alexander family had run that club more or less for, uh, you know, the previous 70 years or whatever. And, and they were sort of cast aside. Peter Swales eventually became chairman. By the time Peter Swales became chairman, Joe Mercer had obviously been sort of made to feel completely unwelcome and had moved on. But not only that, Malcolm Allison had, had resigned because everything he'd been promised just didn't happen. And and instead of thinking about the traditions of the club, instead of thinking about the history of the club, instead of thinking about what had made the club successful, they thought we we we're bigger. We that Malcolm's bigger than the others. You know that the success, the success wasn't this having this um, elder statesman type figure. It wasn't about the the, the strong um, leadership from the board of directors and the chairman who'd been there for, for for some time. You know, throughout his life, he was a seventy eight year old man. The chairman he'd been he'd been part of that club all his life because his his dad had been a, a vice chairman of a club and so. And it wasn't about that. It was about a few people wanting to make this club a European super club not realising that they'd achieved something that a lot of other clubs hadn't achieved at that point. They'd won a major European trophy, that they'd won four trophies in those seasons, that they were getting massive support in comparison to, to, to a lot of other teams. They didn't, they didn't see that success. They saw, you know, possibly because Manchester United had won the European Cup in 1968, possibly they felt, well, we should have the European Cup. But these guys were the ones who eventually took City from that position of power and strength to be the city of the 1980s where, you know, I'm, I'm there watching the club um, struggle against Luton Town and get relegated um, and then, then can't afford to buy players, uh, is desperate, gets, gets a lucky promotion and then gets relegated again. And it, it so so this takeover set the tone for everything that followed over the next 30 years and is the reason why 
City to a lot of people are regarded today as a club that was perhaps a small club that got lucky instead of thinking it was a major club that fell on our times and it's now got lucky. It has got lucky. I'm not going to say it hasn't, but you know, it's, it's back to, it's back to where it should be, if you like. Back to where it should be. So what, what does that mean for tonight's game? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I I what I don't I don't know what's going to happen tonight. I really don't. But but whatever happens, I just want it to be a good game. And obviously, I want I do want City to win. I'm not going to pretend I don't. I do want City to win, and I want City to win the league, and I want you know want that. But but I also know that if they don't, they don't. You know that's football. That's what we love about football. When when any one team has all the success, that's not great for the game. But that's what we all had. In the nineties, you know, basically it was United and Arsenal, and no one else got a look in more or less. I know, you know, occasionally Blackburn would win the league or whatever, but you know, it ended up two wealthy teams, and it was who's who might just scrape into the top four. And it should it should be about six, seven, eight, ten teams challenging for a title, as it was when Joe Mercer was managing City, as it was when, you know, Everton won the league in, in the 80s. You know, it's, it's one of those things that, that back in the 80s, my team was out of it, really. But, uh, you know, there were at least four or five teams that could have won the league. And, and you know, if you think about teams like Aston Villa, who did win the league as well around that time, you know, it, 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 it was a more of an even playing field. But unfortunately, the Burford Premier League and the, the money obsessed um, clubs that, that that benefited in the early Premier League years are the ones that, that tried to stop us all from competing. Indeed, you, you and I were talking about financial fair play earlier. I know um, time is defeating us on this occasion, at least to talk about it. But um, no. So your 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 book, Gary. Where where would be the best? place for people to buy it if they wanted to and I thoroughly recommend it of course but where, where would be the best place from your perspective for people to buy oh, well, it? Well I mean obviously you can, you can, yeah you can still get it from Amazon or um, the book depository or any of those sort of websites that, that do that. Also my own um, website which is gjfootballarchive.com I've got a shop page on there where you can um, you can buy the Joe Mercer book. And obviously, if you buy it off me, I'll 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 sign it as well. Um, it it came out well. I, the version that I'm selling now, I, I updated it um, in 2010, and the reason I did that was because um, quite a lot had actually happened after Joe's death that affected Joe in some ways. So you know, I, I, the last chapter I called the Mer- Mercer Legacy, and and the thing about that was. Um, you know, there's, there's tributes to him at various places, Arsenal, uh, Everton, uh, you know, the, the Jumas Suite and, and uh, at Manchester City. Um, so I wanted to include some of that. But also, the, 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 I've put in there some of the stories about how clubs like Manchester City didn't necessarily um, do the right thing by Joe during his lifetime, you know. So, so yeah. Uh, but, yeah, you can get it off gjfootballarchive.com or from uh, any of the usual sort of online retailers. Brilliant. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link uh, in, in with the podcast. Um, Gary, we've, we've been talking for well over an hour, so probably <laughs> give, our, give our listeners a break. Um, but thank, thank you so much. Really, really fascinating stories. Lo- lovely stories about um, a, a lovely man. And um, look, I think we should um, continue the chat on, on another occasion. I, I would very much enjoy doing that. Sure, and, and I've really enjoyed that. And I genuinely hope that Everton get the move to stadium and get the chances that that we've had over the last decade because it's wrong when it's just two, three, four clubs that, that are at that level. You know, there are many giants like Everton, like City, like Villa, um, who deserve that chance. Well, that's very, 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 very gracious of you to say so. And I think, yeah, I obviously to- totally agree. So, um, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we've got, a, we've got an owner who's not, not at all scared to put cash in so that's that's the first bit and you know under Angelotti I think we've got a manager that can bring us some some success so we will see what happens Gary thank you so much for your time really really enjoyed chatting to you and um, I, I appreciate your time enormously thank you cheers thanks <laughs>